In this episode of Boss Files, Wall Street powerhouse Carla Harris. She's vice chairman of Morgan Stanley and a woman who has broken glass ceiling after glass ceiling. She was the first African-American, man or woman, to join Morgan Stanley's management committee. A Harvard grad, she's defied numerous naysayers along the way and never taken no for an answer. Not only has she reached the pinnacle of professional success, she's an acclaimed gospel singer and a new mother as well. Here's my in-depth conversation with Carla Harris. Carla Harris, so nice to meet you. Thank you for doing this. Very nice to meet you, Poppy. Thank you for having me. You have quite the resume, and the latest addition, the most important addition to it, is being a mom of a 20-month-old little girl, so we'll get to that in a moment. But let's begin with this. You were no question a first. You joined Morgan Stanley back in 1987. You became the first black person ever, man or woman, to join the Morgan Stanley Management Committee. Your road here has not been an easy one, that's for sure. And you were told by people you could never make it here. Sure. You proved them all wrong. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And along the way, no matter who you are, there's always going to be detractors. But there were certainly people who said, you know, there's not anybody that looks like you that's doing what you're doing. You know, do your very best. But the one thing that you ought to know about me, Poppy, is that I am negatively motivated. <laughs> so when you tell me I can't do something, I am all over it like a bad smell. And, and if anything, it really pushes me even further uh, to go forward, especially if somebody thinks that I can't do it. Have you always been negatively motivated? I mean, walk us back to what, what your childhood was like yeah. and what made you that way. Well, I'll say that I had, in, in my opinion, a great childhood because my parents brought me up in a no-excuses household. So I could never make an excuse, oh, I didn't get that grade because the teacher didn't like me or this happened or that happened. So I could never really run to race or gender you know, as the first base anyway as to why something didn't happen. Happen, And the other thing that my parents did that I thought was quite effective is that they always made me feel that I was supposed to do well. So if when I came home, I'll never forget one day and said, Daddy, Daddy, you owe me a lot of money. I made a great report card. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, so-and-so's mama give them a dollar for every A. So-and-so's dad's 50 cents. And he's like, what? You're supposed to do well. See what happens if you don't do well. I'm not giving you any money for that. So, again, my takeaway was, oh, I'm supposed to yeah. do well. And then my paternal grandmother, who was the first female entrepreneur that I ever met, mm. she always said to me, baby, whatever you be, be good at it. Mm. And so, again, that instilled in my mind that if you're going to bother to do anything, give it your all. Mm. Give it your best. So that's I, where it came from. Look, I think it's interesting, and I want to dig into a little bit, that your parents as you've put it, didn't let you play any cards, didn't even let you say I'm not getting X because I'm a woman or I'm not getting X because I'm a black woman. But in fact, you probably didn't get some opportunities because of that. Your road here was harder because of those things, was it not? It was no question that it was more challenging, but I'll I'll tell you, Poppy, when I look back, I think part of the challenges were, especially in my career, was that I didn't quite understand all the rules of engagement. I didn't understand all the rules of the game. So what you're told, especially when you're leaving school, especially a great school like Harvard or Harvard Business School, work hard, 
you know, be smart, you'll get to the top. But I quickly figured out when I started out in my career that being smart and working hard was not enough. And in my background, that was also what I'd been taught. Growing up black in the South, mm. that's what people tell you to do. Keep your head down, work really hard. But you don't hear about the power of relationships mm. and the importance of investing in those relationships. So if you think you can just be an island and put your head down and work hard and that will get you to the top, that will not mm. do it. So I would say that more of my challenges were not be just because of gender or, or race, it was because I didn't understand how the game was played and I had to acquire, as I like to call them, those pearls, Carla's yeah. pearls. I had to acquire those pearls along the way to inform my success. So we're going to get into that in a moment because this is fascinating, Carla's pearls, and you, you give speeches all around the world about this and sort of your, your life lessons, business lessons to help others. We'll get to that in a moment, but staying on the theme of your mm -hmm. parents and your, and your upbringing, you've said as a child that your mother always said to you, the world is not fair, so get an A+. Plus. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I thought that was her genius way, frankly, of uh, preparing me for the discrimination that might await me as I moved into the world, if you will. And so she'd say, be so outstanding that there's no debate. So if you want that A, get the A+. Plus. So if they shave you, you'll have an A. Now, I didn't stop to say, who is they? and why might they shave me? But obviously over time, as you grow older and you become more mature, you start to see some of the inequities. You might even experience some of the inequities. But any time I even remotely thought that there was an inequity there, mm -hmm. then it just m motivated me to push even further. So when did you live that? When was the most stunning moment to you where you were discriminated against? Yeah, I'll tell you the first time, and, and I really, it really was, was very subtle. Um, was when I was in high school and I went to a fabulous high school, there was a, a guidance counselor at the time and he said to me, do not apply to any Ivy League schools. Hmm. And I said, why? And he said, because it's very difficult. So I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt, Poppy. I'm going to say that he was trying to keep me from having a disappointment. Very kind and, of you. Yeah. And he said, don't apply. You'll get into the Florida schools. Don't worry about it. You, you'll be great. And I said, well, what does it take to get into these Ivy League schools? He said, you got to have great grades. I said, well, I have a 4.0. You have to have great SAT scores. I said, I have great SAT scores and I'm involved. He said, but just trust me. Mm. You'll be fine. You'll go to college. Just apply to the Florida schools. So be the, being the obedient girl that I am, I applied to all the Florida schools and I applied to all the schools that I was interested <laughs> in going to. And I got into them all. You applied, you got into three, all three mm -hmm. Ivies you mm -hmm. applied to. Absolutely. And I tell kids today, never count yourself out because you don't know what, what it will be about your person that may have someone say, oh, she has to be a part of our class. So you chose a little school yes. named Harvard, yes. not very well known at all. And then you go to your parents and you say, I got into Harvard, I'm going to Harvard. That's and their right. response to you was? How, you gotta, how are we going to pay for that? That was the first thing my mother said. How are we going to pay for that? And I said, I don't know, Ma but I'm going. What you have to understand is that my parents always told me I was going to go to college, but they never said it had to be this school or that school. And they always assumed that I would get uh, a scholarship because I was academically very strong. So they had not really prepared for me to go to a college. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden now, when I said I'm going to go to Harvard, when I had a full ride, at Florida A&M University and University of Florida and FSU, and now I'm saying, but we have to pay. They like, what are you talking so about? So how'd you make it happen? Right. Well, um, they pulled together and they gathered money together, and I worked three jobs while I was there, and I had loans. Wow. So you went to Harvard, and then you went on to Harvard Business School. Yes. I read that a male grad student at Harvard told you, 
don't study economics. That's true. That's absolutely right. What was he thinking? Yes. Well, again, and that was a part of my negative motivation. He was my uh, teaching fellow mm -hmm. for the large economic uh, course, the entry level course that everybody takes at Harvard. And he was my teaching fellow. So I went to him twice a week and he said, uh, when it was time to, to declare your major as a freshman, he said, girl, whatever you do, don't major in economics because you can't think. So you know what I did? Mm. I went right over to the freshman <laughs> dean's office and I signed up for economics. And I also signed up for government uh, at the time. But by my senior year, it was very clear that despite the fact that I had taken all the government prerequisites, I was really very focused mm. on economics and I wanted my thesis to be driven by you know the economic concepts as opposed to the uh, government concepts. What was your thesis on? The differential impact of affirmative action on black women versus Ooh. black men, 1964 to 1984. What a time period too, yeah. right? Yeah. So you went to Harvard undergrad, Harvard Business School. Mm -hmm. You get this big job at Morgan Stanley. But I wonder, do you think it was those degrees, those grades, those you know test scores that have made you a success? Or is it the pearls, the way you've acted, the way you've carried yourself, the relationships you've made. If you look back, what helped you more? Oh, sure. I can tell you there, there are three things. Number one was my spirituality, no question about it. Number two, my academic uh, background at Harvard undergrad and Harvard Business School absolutely did prepare me. And not just the content that I received from professors, but the interaction with my fellow students. I learned a lot from the people I sat next to, both in undergrad and also in grad school. And then the third, I would say, was the experiences that created the pearls. It's actually falling in a hole, realizing, oh, this is not going very well. What happened? How yeah. did I get here? Yeah. And then understanding what I should have done and then applying that the next time it came around. Because you know how life works. If you don't pass the test, you will repeat the class. That is true. <laughs> So you get hired at Morgan Stanley, and you're working in mergers and acquisitions, M&A. This is, despite the advice of a lot of people, told you not to go into M&A. Right. Why? Right. I mean, especially at that time, what a booming time to be in it. That's exactly right. Uh, two reasons. The negative motivation. Everybody said, don't do it. And second of all, I knew that if it was that hot, if mm -hmm. it was that busy, if mm -hmm. it required 100 hours a week, then I would learn a lot in a short period of time. And at that point, I couldn't have told you that I wanted to be a manager director and I would be there 20 plus years. So the game in my mind was to get as much experience, knowledge, and content as you could in as short a period of time. So then you could make whatever decisions you wanted to make four years out of school six years out of school and it was certainly great training. Why did people say don't do this? Well because they said oh it's a lot of hours you won't have a life they all wear beepers you know you get treated horribly those were all the, the you know the horror stories that existed on the street not just at the firm yeah. but on the street about M&A in particular because remember it was the late 80s. Yeah, of this course. was the time of junk bonds and lots of and the, the first mega deals were happening the first billion dollar plus deals mm -hmm. were starting to happen RJR and deals like that at that time mm -hmm. uh, so this this was really where it was intense. You oversaw some of the biggest uh, IPOs out there. Um, Martha Stewart Living, Omni Media, UPS, mm -hmm. a big one. UPS, the biggest IPO in U.S. history. At that at time. At that time. At that right? time. Huge. What were the highlights? I mean, what that must have been exhilarating. Yes, it was. And I'll tell you the, the thing that is still most special to me about that transaction, not to mention the team of people that I worked with at Morgan Stanley, but at that time, UPS was a 92-year-old company. So think about all of those generations of families yeah. that had actually benefited economically because the dad worked on that truck for 30 or 40 years or the mom worked you know in that office or on the truck at UPS and to now know that we were doing something so important where there would be liquidity and wealth 
creation for all of those families that had worked there for all of those years, that was that was pretty empowering to think that there was a multiplier effect around mm -hmm. us getting that right for all of those families and all the descendants of those families. You have said that you feel a responsibility, a personal responsibility to positively impact those who have not had interactions with, in your words, quote, people like you. That's right. What does that mean? That means we are all a function of our experience, no matter who we are. So if someone has an encounter with me and they have never had an encounter with an African-American woman before, I want that to be a very positive experience so that the next time they see someone who looks like me, hopefully there's a halo effect. Hopefully they approach that person with expectations that that's going to be a good interaction because of the interaction that they have with me. Mm -hmm. So I don't take any of my interactions with anybody lightly. Mm -hmm. So when did you stumble the most along this path? I mean, oh. you've had quite a path at yes. Morgan Stanley now to, to, you know, one of the highest, if not the highest ranking woman there. Where were your... Where were the moments that tripped you up the most? Yes, the moments that tripped me up the most were very early on when I really, as I said earlier, did not have the pearls. So, you know, in the first few assignments, when I was working as hard as I could, delivering on what I thought I should deliver on, I certainly had some folks that I worked with that were making me feel less than or that I couldn't get it right. And at one point, I will tell you that my confidence was so busted mm. that if you had said to me, your name is Carla Harris, I would have said, are you sure? Wow. Right. Um, and at the end of the day, I treasure that experience because it was out of that experience that I started to realize, wait a minute, something's wrong here. Wait, let me look at the data. The data is I'm magna cum laude from Harvard, second year honors Harvard Business School. I've always been strong in things that are analytical or quantitative. How is it that this person is making me feel that I can't do numbers? Something's wrong in this equation. Now it's up to me if I'm going to be focused on the distraction of this experience right now or the truth the reality of all the things that I've done. Now let me figure out how I can make some sense out of what's uh -huh. going on. And that was an epiphany moment because I thought to myself, wait a minute, this person's pretty insecure. And that's when I learned that an insecure boss is a really difficult person to work for because they can't teach you and they will not support you or promote you. Their job is to keep you from finding out that, oh, by the way, they're probably not that good. So which is why they have you running around and have you with all these distractions totally. because they're deathly afraid that you will expose them. Well, that was epiphany number one. And once I figured that out, then I said, wait a minute, I, I am smart. I do have what it takes. Let me figure out what happens if I work for someone else and not for this person. So I made sure that on the next assignment yeah. that I was assigned to someone else and then voila, then everyone could see wow. and so could I. Not threatened so, by you, but absolutely. embracing your talent That's and exactly right. I mean, the best leaders, the best C CEOs, as you've seen, surround themselves with people smarter than them. They are not threatened by who may come next. Absolutely, absolutely. So you're, if for people listening to the podcast part of this, cannot see the pearls you are donned in, but you are wearing pearls and you yeah. are, pearls are a part of your heart. This is, um, how do I describe it? This is sort of your life path, your life lessons others. What are the pearls and what are the key tenets of them? Yes. In the first book, Expect to Win, that's where I write the basic pearls. The first one was authenticity. You are your own competitive advantage. No one can be you the way that you can be you. The second is be the architect of your own agenda. 
always know why you are doing what you're doing. Why are you in that seat and why are you in this house? The seat is the job. The house is where you're prosecuting it. The third, because if you know why you're doing what you're doing, it'll keep you from making emotional decisions in your career. The third is the 90-day rule. No matter what you're doing when you go into a new organization, it is human nature for them to evaluate you after the first quarter. So make sure that you're putting some points on the board or giving evidence that you were a, an amazing addition to the team. That point really stuck out to me. Think of the three adjectives that you want the world to see you mm -hmm. as. Mm -hmm. And then I, the argument is that you, that helps you uh, put that out to, to other yes. people. And when they're in the room without you making the decision about your promotion, all of the, your raise, what mm -hmm. happens next to you, you hope that they think of you in that way? That's right. That is the fourth pearl. Perception is the co-pilot to reality. Mm. How people perceive you will directly impact how they deal with you. And the, the point there is that you can train them to think about you in that way by living, breathing, and speaking those mm. adjectives in that environment. The fifth pearl is understanding the power of relationships, and that's where I write about the advisor, the mentor, and the sponsor, with an emphasis on the sponsor being the most important relationship that you can have in your professional life. The sixth one is leverage your voice. You don't ask, you don't get. The seventh is the importance of taking risks. The eighth is understanding the power in the network. Mm -hmm. The ninth is balance and understanding that it is a necessity for long-term success. And 10 is showing up with an expect to win mentality. And then the very last pearl in the book, not enumerated, is what I call my most precious pearl. And that's where I connect the dots between being a spiritual warrior and a professional mm -hmm. success. Not to mention a gospel singer, yes. which we will get to in a moment. Very accomplished on that front. Um, I'm interested in how you approached Wall Street because I, I had read that a lot of folks said you're not tough enough. Yeah. Yes. And and I write about that because that was an aha moment for me, Poppy, that I had somehow swallowed my voice and I'd lost my confidence because I always saw myself as tough. So the day that that guy questioned whether or not I was, quote, tough enough for the business, that was also a wake-up call to me that the real Carla Harris was no longer showing up at Morgan Stanley. Somewhere I'd lost my voice and somewhere I'd lost my confidence. Why do, where do you think you lost it and why? Oh, it's easy to lose your voice. The minute you have a couple of things that don't go well in your environment or that don't go the way you expect, especially early on in that mm -hmm. environment where there's still, I would argue, uh, some threat to your overall confidence because you're a new girl on the block or you're learning something for the first time. If it doesn't go well or somebody criticizes you, and remember, this is the late 80s in yeah. Wall Street where it was rough and tough and it was no big deal to get dressed down you know, right in the middle of a, a trading floor or in the middle of your, of your floor, then you start to say, uh-oh, well, what happened? Especially if up until that point, you've never really had any failures. You've never had any infractions to your confidence. Yeah. All of a sudden, two or three of those, then you start to question whether or not you were made for this business. So how'd you get your voice back? Yes. And how did you, when did you go in and ask for more? Because all the studies show that women still are, are less likely than men to ask for the raises that yeah. they deserve. And mm. Did you go in there and say, pay me more, I'm worth it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I will tell you that that was a seminal moment. That was a seminal moment for two reasons. Number one, I said, wait, they're not seeing me the way I see myself. And oh, by the way, that tough thing is something that they value. So let me turn this around right there. That was the first lesson. Second lesson was that I could, was that I could train them 
to think about me differently when people would say, oh, you can't change people's perception about you. So that was a very important pearl. And then from there, I also had a colleague. Did they say yes? By the way? Did you go and say, I want oh, X? Oh, that's two, two separate points. Okay. One was around the tough. The All other right. was around the money. Yeah. Then I had a colleague say to me uh, a few years later, he said, you know, I go in every year and tell them what I want to get paid. And I said, what? What language do you use? How do you do that? <laughs> and he said, you know, I just, I just do it. And I got to tell you, Poppy, that was a difficult one for me because I kept saying, how can I do that? I can't, I can't do that. And studies show that women don't talk about money. But I'll tell you what pushed me over the edge. We get paid in a range as an investment banker. And I said, Carla, suppose you don't say anything and you get paid at the low end of the range. Suppose you say something and you get paid at the top end. And sometimes that range could be a couple hundred thousand dollars, one hundred thousand dollars, it could be more. And so let's just say it's a hundred thousand dollars difference between the low end and the high end of your class. And I thought, is your fear worth a hundred thousand dollars? No. Right. Exactly. And so I began to practice till I felt comfortable enough to go in and have a conversation. And there was a direct correlation between what I got that year and having opened wow. my mouth. Wow. There are still so few women like you on Wall Street, so few black female top executives at these firms. And it is 2017, mm -hmm. and I cannot get my head around why. All of these companies have diversity councils, diversity handbooks. There is a real care, I believe, an emphasis on it, but that is not matched by the reality. Why? Well, I'll have to tell you, and this is my macro comment, not just for financial services, but it's in your business as well. It's in consumer products, you name it. Uh, and I think there are a couple of issues going on. The first one is, I think those of us who are boomers and even those who are a little older than me, traditionalists, I don't think that we are doing our part in telling the story huh. around the fact that you can do it and telling the truths around where there might be challenges and, and where there might not be. Because I speak to a lot of young women, millennials and Xers, and they're still asking the questions that we were asking. Can I have it all? Am I going to have to sacrifice this? Or what happens when I get to this? Or the guys won't let me do that. And we should say, uh-uh, wait a minute. Let me tell you, A, that you can do it, and let me give you the formula around yeah. how to do it. And I don't think enough of us are doing that. So I'm going to put the first responsibility on us. Mm. The second, I would argue, is that, you know, I think that a lot of these organizations, while the folks at the top may be passionate about it, yeah. they are not paying enough, enough attention to Middle those managers. who are exactly those who are below them. And none of these industries, let alone companies, none of these industries are mature enough for it to just happen naturally yeah. in the culture. Yeah. You need to have what I call a policeman. You need to have someone who is accountable, who's asking the questions. Bob, I don't see the, the, you know, enough women in your pipeline. Yeah. What's the story and why not? And what can the organization do to help you fill yeah. that pipeline? Because yeah. it doesn't look like we want it to look. Or Bob, I told you it was going to be important for us to promote more women in your area. You know what? You would have gotten X, but now you're getting X minus Y because it really was important. And you know what? It's not just about being the right thing to do and important to represent diversity. Every study shows that companies that have more women on their boards mm -hmm and in the executive positions perform better financially. That's why it's so startling to me. You will make more money if you do this, yes. and yet corporate America hasn't caught up. They're coming along, but, but, but look at this, Poppy. The research is only now starting to get to the marketplace, mm -hmm. and those who don't get it will hug the data. Mm. And before now, we haven't had the data. That's true. Now, right? it's a, you can't argue with numbers. You can't exactly. argue with facts, folks, right? That's right. Um, all right, you brought up balance. You are mm -hmm. a relatively new mother, as am I. You're at tw you have a 20-month-old. Yes. 
little daughter. I have an 11 month old. What's your take on this proverbial question about work-life balance? Does it exist? How do you get it? Yes, I have to tell you that I am one of those senior executives who feel strongly that you absolutely can have balance. And the reason is I had a terrific role model. My mother had a career. She was a wife. She was a mother. She was very involved in her community. Me too. And she was passionate about playing bingo almost every night, <laughs> especially as I got older. And so I grew up with this model that you could have it all. And what I think the trick is, though, is that you need to define what all is for you and what success is for you. And the reason why I think so often we feel that you can't have it all is that we are measuring our lives against somebody else's report card. Yeah. And the only report card that matters is the one that you've defined for huh. your household. So what is what does having it all mean to you? That's really the central yes, question, I, I right? Think, I think having a fulfilling career, fulfilling to you intellectually, financially, yeah. every way that you define. I think making sure that you are a great role model for your children, whether it's a son or a daughter, that they can look up for you. They feel empowered. They feel encouraged. They feel like they can take risks. But most importantly, they feel loved and supported. Mm -hmm. I think it's also being impactful philanthropically because I didn't get here on my own, and so for Carla Harris, being able to give back is really, really important. Um, I think it's also obviously having uh, a great social life with, with supportive friends and people that you like to spend time with, and for me, it's also singing and being able to express that part of who I am. So all of those things are a part of, of my success equation. Um, I, I've written about this in some opinion pieces, but I see the unjust reality we're living in right now that you and I can work for companies that will pay us to take mm. a long amount of time off to be with our newborn children. And that is not a reality for most mm -hmm. American women mm -hmm. right now. Um, whether it is the government's role to step in and do this, whether it is incumbent on, on private corporations to do this, um, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that, about how we help not just mothers, more parents. I think paternity leave is incredibly important. How do we get to a place as a country where your socioeconomic status does not define how much time you are allowed to spend at home with your newborn? Yes. Well, obviously, I think the government can play a huge role in this because, you know, the, uh, the, the legislative branch can can create laws that would make that the law of the land. Should they? Right? Uh, oh, I absolutely would be supportive of that because I think it makes a big difference for the family. Mm -hmm. I think it makes a big difference for the individuals, the mother and the father, and certainly it makes a big difference for, for the kids. So I would be very supportive of that. But the other thing that I think, so away from government, I think private sector can do that as well. Uh, and the thing that I'm excited about, which is why I smiled when you asked the question, is I think that the millennials are going to turbo boost these kinds of policies because they will demand it. And you can already to see uh, some um some semblance of that when you think about some of the policies that have been implemented by some of the technology companies yep. and their, you know, their workforce is largely millennials and Xers. So yeah. I think that that is going to spread across industries, frankly. Sure. I mean, Facebook, four months, paternity leave, but it's uh, maternity and paternity, but it's, it's trickling down. My husband took a month of paternity leave mm -hmm. before his consulting firm had this policy. Now, of course, they give four months. Yeah. Of course, you know, we didn't fall in that bucket, but he took this month because it was important to to him and it made an incredible difference on our life that I didn't expect. So you think we're sitting here five, ten years from now, it's gonna be a totally different ballgame? Yes, I'll make that bet because I do think they're gonna I'm not betting it. you I'm not <laughs> putting any money. I know you're gonna be right on all this stuff. Um, should there be quotas? Germany has 
uh, instituted quotas, for example, for women on corporate boards. Um, I, I don't know. Is that the role of government? Does the United States need quotas to get enough women in these positions? You know what? I'd like to be a little bit more optimistic than that. I'd, you know, I'd like to say that we're going to get there with respect to corporate America, that we'll get there without having to have that. Now, it may take that because sometimes in order to get, you know, what could be deemed as revolutionary yeah. change, yeah. sometimes you might have to have the hammer approach. But I do think the data that we just talked about uh, is going to be overwhelming more and more to corporations. And again, when you're talking about share price and you're talking about ROE and volatility, yeah. and, and my firm, I was so proud, put out a piece uh, last uh, last year around the fact that having more uh, you know, gender equality on your board certainly is directly correlated with ROE and volatility. Mm -hmm. And that that accrues to shareholder value, right? Yeah. So I think as more and more of that data gets out there, yeah. um, you'll start to see more changes. How has being a mom changed you? Yeah, I have to tell you, it has uh, made me more patient, um, <laughs> and it's made me more tolerant of things that I can't control. Because as you might imagine, being on Wall Street for almost 30 years, your type A personality, you're used to having a measure of control. Uh, but obviously, every day with a baby is different. So you think totally. you've got, got the algorithm right on Tuesday, oh, and no. whatever you did on Tuesday, you try to do it on Wednesday, and it does not work. And you, you have to understand how to flow with that and be creative in the moment. I'm just laughing, thinking about conference calls I've tried to have at home with my daughter, and she's pulling my headphones out, and it just, you know... It, this is just life. This yeah. is just the unexpected. Yeah, but it's good. It's, it's good. The best. Yes. It's the best. You have an interesting MO that I was reading about. Invite yourself mm -hmm. so that you can guarantee you're included. Well, where did that come from? Yes. So often I would get questions from people saying, well, I don't get invited to drinks after work. Or, you know, they don't, they don't ask me when they go down to the cafeteria for lunch. And I say, invite yourself. We're all working in, in what I call these non-confrontational env environments. So when you just invite yourself, nobody's ever going to look at you and say, you can't come. Never going to happen. And if it's after work drinks, then you get there and you buy the first round. Mm -hmm. And make sure that you integrate in, you know, in, in the group of, of peers. Because it's important also that people who are senior, senior to you see you as part of the fabric. Mm -hmm. And when they see that you're integrated or interacting with your peers, that checks that box for them. Uh, and, and helps them to believe that perhaps you could be a leader among those peers. You were picked to be, uh, to head President Obama's National Women's Business Council. Mm -hmm. This was back in 2013. What was that like for you? What did the president tell you he hoped that you could accomplish? Well, I'll tell you that uh, it, it wasn't the president uh, so much as it was the then head of the SBA, Karen okay, Mills, yeah, yeah. because she worked so closely with the National Women's Business Council, and she was trying to do as much as she could to get the word out about the power of the SBA and what the SBA could do. Um, and she was really looking uh, at me to say, hey, I really want you to think about how you can um, raise a level of visibility among women entrepreneurs about the resources that are available to them. And obviously, you saw the president's agenda which we try to integrate very closely with, with respect to empowering women mm -hmm. and creating greater scale. So when I spoke to the White House, they were quite interested in the scale argument. It's one thing to have women start businesses, but what can you do around getting them to grow those businesses? Because that was the thing that well, would magnify jobs. And get the venture money. I mean, when Absolutely. you look at where VC money is going, it's paltry to women, right. uh, you know, women-run startups and female founders when compared to men. Right. So after I had the conversations 
with the White House and some folks on the Hill and the SBA, the, the NWBC came up with four pillars. Uh, and I work with a terrific group of women at, uh, not only on the council, but also in the office of NWBC. And the four pillars were access to capital. To your point, yeah. women do not have access to the traditional forms of venture capital. Access to jobs, that was the scaling argument. Access to markets, and we were really focused on federal procurement mm -hmm. because when I came into the seat, it was uh, said to me that a billion and a half dollars that had already set aside in the federal government for spending with women-owned businesses were unallocated mm. every year. And that was just mind-boggling. And the last piece was data. To the point we yeah. talked about earlier, those who don't get it, hug the data. Yeah. So the main thing that NWBC does is to put out proprietary research around women entrepreneurs to drive yeah. policy change and hopefully private sector change. So what about under this administration, under the Trump administration, do you foresee yourself having an advisory role? Would you like to work with the White House and on advancing some of these things? Well, the council works with the White House. As I like to say, the council has three customers, the White House, the SBA, uh, as well so as Congress. Still, this is, so I'm still okay. in the capacity as chair uh, for now. And as I said, I work with a great group of women. So as long as we can make an impact, that's what I'll do. What's message number one from you to the Trump administration on these passion points for you? I mean, what would you like to see most mm -hmm. after four years? And I, I, you know, there may be a few different things. One from your, with your business hat on, um, in terms of what's best for the business at Morgan Stanley and one with your sort of passion hat on of advancing women? Well, I'll tell you, the main thing is I would say create greater access to capital for women entrepreneurs. And, and I'll tell you why. The, especially during the financial services crisis, women, that was the vertical. Women entrepreneurs was the vertical that had the fastest growth with respect to businesses wow. and, and jobs. So if they could do that in what was deemed to be a major crisis, think what would happen when we have better economic times. And it's continued to accelerate. And interestingly enough, especially with women of color, you know, African-American women and Latina entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. So if you open up the spigots, I think there will be massive job creation by women entrepreneurs. And I think the millennial women have an even greater appetite around entrepreneurship than even those of us who are boomers. And now those of us who are boomers have capital that we can also give to sure. some of these emerging entrepreneurs. So that would be the number one thing that I would say, focus on creating greater access to capital for women. You were at Morgan Stanley through the financial crisis, through the depths of it. Uh, some have have posited that the crisis wouldn't have been as great as it was or the extent to which it happened if more women were running the banks. Do you ascribe to that philosophy? Well, I have to say I'm biased. So <laughs> I, I, would, I, I, would, I would say, I mean, you were in the you thick know, of it, right? Yes. And women have a different ri appetite risk. Yes, but, but I'll have to say, you know, I, I can't 100% I can't say yes on that because then that would be making a comment on uh, you know, the, the guys that were in the seat and whether or not they did a good job. And I think given the depth of that crisis, uh, people did the best job that they could. Yeah. I do think having more women at the table and therefore having more women in those kinds of positions uh, would certainly be powerful and meaningful for the country. Why? Because it's an, another way of thinking, right? And anytime you have diver diverse voices around the table, by definition, you get to better decisions. Maybe we should look into these tranches just a little bit more and see what's in all of this prime that we're selling. Um, before we wrap up, you brought up the word power. Do you consider yourself a powerful woman? Yes, ma'am. And what is power to you? Power is being able to influence others' actions. And either you can get it done on your own or you can get it done on somebody else's behalf 
through influencing someone else, but it's the ability to make things happen. So I said we'd talk about you being a gospel singer. Yes, ma'am. Can we get a tune? Ah, okay. <clears throat> okay. Even a little bit of one? All righty. This is, the, um, this is the, the chorus on the 10th song on my last album. Right. The album is called Unceasing Praise. I had the privilege of singing the title, uh, the title song for the Pope when he came a couple of years wow. ago. Um, but this is called Expect to Win, written by SWAT singers with a testimony from Brown Memorial Baptist Church. And the uh, chorus goes like this. <clears throat> Expect to win, no matter what you're up against. Don't give up, don't give in. Oh, yes, you can. Not fear, but faith will win the race. Don't give up, don't give in. Expect to win. Final beautiful words, Carla Harris. Thank you. All right. Thank so you. So nice to meet you. Thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of Boss Files. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Poppy Harlow CNN. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.